Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. There are a few technologies that just transform the world. Take the invention of transistors in the middle of the 20th century. Transistors led to computer chips and the youthful entrepreneurs of the homebrew computer club in Silicon Valley. The rest is history. There's a revolution with a similar flavour going on right now in biology. Where transistors transformed electronic circuits and created the information age, gene editing is transforming how scientists understand and manipulate the DNA of life itself. Scientists have been able to modify DNA for decades, but the processes they've been using have been slow and hard to target. That all changed in 2012, when a group of scientists, led by our guest today, discovered a new and radically better technique. Their tool, called CRISPR-Cas9, opened up what was once a clunky and expensive process into a game of infinite possibilities that almost anyone could play. Their tool will change the world. One area that has people excited is healthcare. What if you could easily fix defects in a person's genome, for example? Defects that might otherwise cause diseases, such as sickle cell anemia or cystic fibrosis. Right now, these conditions cause a lot of suffering and there are no cures or treatments. The applications for CRISPR go much further than healthcare though. Anything with DNA can be edited. Think plants edited to better withstand climate change, bacteria engineered to produce carbon neutral biofuels, or animals edited to resist disease. CRISPR-Cas9 was discovered 10 years ago, and we're still at the very beginning of discovering the potential it offers. Today we'll ask, what can we expect in its next 10 years. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science correspondent. In this week's show, I'll be discussing the technology, ethics, safety and future applications of CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing with Professor Jennifer Doudner, one of the scientists who discovered the tool Later on, I'll also be joined by Natasha Loder, The Economist's health policy editor, and Oliver Morton, our briefings editor, to get their thoughts on how much CRISPR gene editing will really change the game in biotechnology. Now over to the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. In 2020... The biochemist Jennifer Doudner won the most prestigious prize in chemistry. This year's prize 
is about rewriting the code of life. The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has today decided to award the 2020 Nobel Prize in Chemistry jointly to Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna for the development of a method for genome editing. The prize celebrated work that the scientists had published in 2012. In the journal Science that year, Doudna and Charpentier had described a type of immune system used by bacteria. These organisms, it turned out, used proteins to identify and chop up any viruses that had managed to infiltrate their DNA. In the same paper, Doudna and Charpentier also described a way that this bacterial immune system, known by the acronym CRISPR, could be programmed to recognise and cut any strand of DNA. A new, very precise gene-editing tool had been invented. Healthcare, agriculture, anything that involves living things will find uses for CRISPR. Amid all the excitements, though, like all the great technologies of the world, gene editing also comes with serious ethical questions. These are probably most thorny when we think about editing the genomes of people. How do you draw the line, for example, between editing genes to prevent serious diseases and designing what your children might look like and how tall they'll be? We'll examine all of that with my guest, Jennifer Doudna. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Alok. It's wonderful to be here. Let's start 10 years ago. In 2012, you and colleagues, including Emmanuel Charpentier, published a paper in the journal Science describing an ancient way that bacteria protect themselves against viruses. And I just wonder if you could talk me through what that paper was about and, and why it turned out to be so important in the history of biology. Well, the publication you're mentioning is one of the highlights of my career, really. It's uh, the, the work that we did in collaboration with Emmanuel Charpentier's lab to figure out how it is that bacteria fight back against viruses using a system known as CRISPR. And this project started as a curiosity-driven investigation. We were collaborating to understand the chemistry of a specific protein called Cas9 that's part of the CRISPR immune system in bacteria. And our question was, how does it work? How does it actually protect bacteria from viral DNA? And that work culminated in the publication that you mentioned, in which we described not only how this Cas9 protein is able to cut virus DNA, but also how it's able to be engineered as a tool for cleaving any DNA sequence. And furthermore, that that chemistry, that fundamental activity could be harnessed as a powerful tool for genome editing in any cell type. And that was really the topic of that paper. And it kicked off a huge amount of work in the field that you know has really changed my life over the last decade. Was there an experiment or a moment or a particular series of things that sort of led you to think, hang on, this is, this is something much bigger than just understanding bacterial layer cells? Well, I would say yes. You know, I think it was really the research that we did as part of that collaboration quickly uncovered the chemistry of the Cas9 protein. And, you know, it's kind of one of those amazing things where you start a project that is headed in one direction, 
But as soon as you start to see the data that are coming out of those experiments, you realize that it has implications that go beyond what you originally imagined, or at least it goes in a different direction. And in this case, we could see that the implications of a technology like this, a programmable way to cut DNA and trigger precise changes to DNA in cells would be extremely powerful. This was not fantasy, really, because it was based on earlier technologies that could do that. They were just a lot harder to use than CRISPR. So the technology we're talking about is a very specific protein of a bacterial immune system called CRISPR, and it acts like a pair of genetic scissors. And it does all of that editing with a power and ease that we've not seen before. But scientists have been trying to edit genes for decades, haven't they? Exactly. I think CRISPR came along at an interesting moment when there were increasing numbers of whole genome sequences available, lots of information about individual genes or even pathways. But what we didn't have was a way to manipulate those sequences. And that's really what the CRISPR technology provides in a easy to use format. So it's been 10 years since that journal paper was published. And you said it's changed your life. And I can imagine why, given the focus on CRISPR in biology for the last decade. Can you just give listeners a sense of how the technology that you and your colleagues described in that paper, how it has been developed and started to be used outside laboratories. One of the things that's been so exciting about the last 10 years for me and for many of us in this field is that the pace of research has accelerated tremendously. And it has been accelerated in part because CRISPR is now incorporated into many standard laboratory procedures, but it's also very exciting because CRISPR is itself a technology that can be utilized as an actual clinical therapy. It can be used in agricultural applications, and we've seen this happening very rapidly. We know that CRISPR is a a technology that can correct disease-causing mutations, for example, for sickle cell disease and, and numerous other diseases that have been tested in various trials that are either ongoing or where data have been announced, and increasingly to do things in the agricultural sector as well, in animals and and plants, where it provides an opportunity for scientists to manipulate DNA in ways that introduce desirable traits and help us deal with some of the environmental and climate challenges that we're all facing. Well, let's take those examples uh, one by one. So you mentioned healthcare and specifically sickle cell. Could you give me an example of of how CRISPR has been used to help correct that particular condition, which, you know, until now has largely evaded therapeutics and has caused lots of pain and suffering uh, over history? That's right. Sickle cell disease is an example of a very well-studied genetic disease that results from a single mutation in a gene in the human DNA, human genome. And as you said, up until recently, certainly, it has not been possible to correct that disease-causing mutation at the source. And this is where CRISPR comes in. It's a tool that can do exactly that. And so one of the very early applications of CRISPR in the laboratory was actually to show that you could manipulate the sequence of DNA in human cells that were derived from patients that suffered from sickle cell disease. So that established a proof of principle. And now this idea has been extended into the clinic with actual patients. 
It's a fascinating example. And I wonder if you could just paint the picture a bit more. How would that therapy be applied? And what would a person with this condition have done to them in the clinic that would then allow them to produce this protein that then helps them with their condition? Well, today, the way this is implemented is that a patient would go to a clinic, their blood stem cells would be removed from their body. And they're called stem cells because they have the ability to regenerate into or, or develop into fully mature blood cells in the body. And those stem cells are then edited using CRISPR to switch on production of this fetal uh, hemoglobin protein. And then those edited cells are replaced into the patient using a bone marrow transplant. And so that's a procedure that is very well established for all sorts of other diseases, but can be implemented here for the purpose of reintroducing these edited cells to the patient, where they take over and effectively provide a new blood system to the person with the edited cells. It's very exciting. It's been highly effective in the patients where it's been tested, but it has some challenges associated with it, including the cost, which currently is a barrier to many more people getting access, but where I think there are some really interesting opportunities to reduce cost and ultimately make this a much more widely available type of therapy. Let's talk about another example. You mentioned agriculture and food, and perhaps this is the thing that will be the first set of applications that most of us might come across. Just just talk to me a bit about the kinds of applications in agriculture and food that you see CRISPR having. I agree completely. I think, and I've thought this for a while now, that the most widely impactful applications of CRISPR for many of us are going to be in the agricultural sector, at least in the near term. And what I see right now is that I think we're just on the cusp of some applications of CRISPR starting to come to market. And that's true both with plant products, such as uh, the CRISPR tomato that was recently announced in Japan, and also animal products, the, the CRISPR cattle that were approved recently in the U.S. And there are a number of other types of applications that are in the pipeline, including using CRISPR to do things like increase crop yields in some of the major crops that are grown around the world that include wheat, rice, sorghum, as well as to start to address challenges of the environmental changes that are happening due to climate change. And that includes increasing drought resistance of crop plants. So these are all things that are achievable using CRISPR and I think we'll have increasing impact as those products begin to come to fruition. So the things you're talking about in terms of changing the genomes of plants to have better yields or to deal with the effects of climate change, we've heard about these ideas for a long time under the guise of genetic modification of plants, GM plants. Just help us understand, what, what does CRISPR add to the toolkit that GM has not been able to do with plants? Well, I guess the word that comes to mind is precision is what it adds to the toolbox. And, and that's really important because with previous technologies for plant engineering, plant biologists were essentially dependent on tools that didn't give them control over where DNA could be manipulated, you know, what exact sequences could be altered. And it was also difficult to make multiple changes in a plant in a single go. So you had to go through multiple rounds of 
of manipulation that, of course, each time bring along the risk of undesired changes to the plant. And I think it's also very important to point out that traditional plant breeding has relied entirely on random changes to DNA in plants that were introduced by chemical mutagens, for example, that would just make random alterations to DNA that then allowed plant breeders to select for plants that had randomly acquired a desired trait or lost a trait that was undesirable. And what CRISPR does is remove all of that randomness and provide a technology that can precisely alter specific DNA sequences in plants, either one at a time or multiple plant genes are manipulated in a single experiment with CRISPR. And that both speeds up the pace of this kind of work. It also gives plant biologists new tools for understanding the fundamental functions of plant genes. So you're saying that CRISPR is a much more precise tool than perhaps the genetic modification technology that's been around for several decades. But I wonder, it obviously doesn't mean that CRISPR itself is perfect. Um, There are going to be ways that it will be improved too in the future, right? I mean, the last 10 years has seen a huge uptick in different research laboratories, both in academic labs and in companies that have been working away on the tool itself. So, for example, CRISPR can be used not only as a pair of DNA scissors, which is kind of how it's designed in nature, but it can also be used to turn on or off the genes that it binds to, that it recognizes in a cell. I think we're going to continue to see that CRISPR toolbox growing over time. And the other thing to point out is that I do think that one of the really exciting cutting edge areas of this field is figuring out how not only to turn off genes, but really to also introduce new genes. And that's currently a a challenge in the field. I just wonder, is there one or more technology in gene editing that excites you right now that's got you sort of really intrigued? I do think the idea of prime editing, and that's manipulating DNA by inserting new sequences with precision, is really important. It it will have lots of, of potential, I think, for allowing clinical applications, inserting new genes that are missing in patients that suffer from diseases of a genetic origin, but also, of course, in agriculture. And it's early right now, Alok, really, right? It's it's early in the sense that there's lots of interesting ideas that are being explored. I don't think I've seen one that is clearly the way to do this yet. Where do you think that the technology of gene editing might be used in the next few decades, which is less well-known, perhaps even unexpected? I mean, I hear about things like protecting against pathogens in the future, actually using the system to cut viruses up as a way of protecting against those? Well, I think that's what you just said is really an interesting direction. It's sort of this idea that CRISPR could be used not only to treat existing disease, but to protect us from disease, to prevent disease before it gets started. And if I'm you know, if I'm allowed to, to speculate here. Um, Please do. I think you're allowed to speculate. Because <laughs> I, obviously I can't, I can't really predict the future and I, I'm, I'm afraid to try, but, but what the heck. Um, it's very interesting to imagine that uh, we're going to see convergence of DNA sequencing with CRISPR and all of the sort of this 
advanced toolbox that we've been discussing for gene manipulation that will give us the ability to prevent disease before it gets started. So let's think about a couple of examples here that I think are very interesting and and really highly relevant to many of us. One is thinking about cardiovascular disease. So this is still one of the, the major killers around the world, especially as we age. It typically results from uh, high cholesterol levels. And there's very good genetic research that's been done over the years showing how our genes make us more or less susceptible to high cholesterol. And in particular, a gene called PCSK9 that was identified as a really interesting contributor to, to cardiovascular disease because of the rare existence of humans that have a mutation in that gene that basically protects them from cardiovascular disease over their lifetime. They just don't have to worry about high cholesterol diets and things like that. And so what's been found in animal models now is that CRISPR can be used to disrupt PCSK9 and protect animals from cardiovascular disease as well, or diet-related sort of issues with, uh, with their heart. I think it's a really interesting possibility. And um, I'm also intrigued by a similar opportunity with neurodegenerative disease, in particular Alzheimer's, where again, very interesting genetic evidence suggests that some of us, based on our genetics, are more susceptible to Alzheimer's over time than others, and where CRISPR could potentially be used to provide protection by converting a gene that is, you know, making us more susceptible to Alzheimer's into a form of that gene that is protective. Let's talk about some of the ethical issues that come up when using CRISPR, um, especially for people. Back in 2018, a Chinese scientist, Dr. Hu Junghui, surprised the world when he announced that he'd edited the genomes of two girls when they were just embryos. He wanted to genetically protect them from the HIV virus. Now, I just wonder if you could take a step back to your thoughts when you heard that news. What was going through your mind? Well, it certainly was shocking. I guess it, in a way, was more shocking than surprising to me because at that time, there had already been several years of scientific discussion and meetings around the potential to use CRISPR in that fashion. In other words, to make heritable changes to human DNA. And just to be very clear, what we're talking about here is something quite distinct from all of the applications we've discussed up until now in humans, which involve editing of the DNA and cells that affect an individual, but not their children. And those changes can't be passed on to future generations. Whereas heritable editing means that we're making changes in the germline. We're doing this in, for example, an embryo, as that announcement in 2018 indicated, where the changes become part of the entire person and they can be passed on to future generations. And so what happened next was kind of interesting in the sense that the news was announced at the second international summit on human genome editing, which was a meeting that was convened. It was happening in Hong Kong that year to talk about this exact subject, not with any (laughs) uh, foresight that anyone would would have actually done this type of work. It was really a meeting that was around, you know, should this be done? And, you know, when would this type of thing potentially be appropriate to do that that sort of uh, discussion? Your reaction that you've described to that news was was quite different to the scientist who'd actually done the work, Dr. Hu Jong-Kui. He tried to project himself as a kind of hero of the field. I'm wondering, um, you met him at the time, 
what did you talk to him about? Uh, what was he trying to project himself as? Um, was, he, was he trying to say that he'd advanced the field in some way? I think you're right. I think that that was certainly my impression when I spoke with him. I met with him before he made the announcement at the meeting, just like, you know, we were sort of meeting right ahead of the, the start of that conference. And it was clear from our conversation that he initially at least imagined that, as you said, he would be seen as a hero in the field, that he would be seen as somebody who had brought the CRISPR technology to this new type of application. I don't know if he imagined that he would be celebrated as a hero. I think he maybe did, but he may have also felt that he was offering people who had some kind of genetic need for this type of application in embryos, offering them an opportunity to use the technology. But it was really extraordinary that he would be thinking about his work that way. And I think what happened over the course of the meeting, which was just you know a few days, was that I do think he realized at the meeting that this was not the reaction that he was getting with the announcement, that in fact it was more of a reaction of horror, shock, you know, revulsion, um, you know, just I think many people feeling that this was really inappropriate work. And as a result, I think it really galvanized the international effort to accelerate the pace of our considerations around the technology, especially with regard to human embryo editing and, and its, its applications. How did that episode change the way that you have deliberated over the ethics of gene editing since? I think that episode certainly underscored the need for active participation in these ethical considerations. I don't think scientists can sit by the sidelines and expect someone else to take that responsibility. I think we have to really be engaged. For me personally, I think it also, you know, not not just that event, but also conversations I had with many colleagues around that event helped me better understand the complexities of, of something like that. You know, there are people whose families suffer from a terrible genetic disease where they see this genetic uh, trait being passed from generation to generation and they're suffering. I've spoken with some of them, you know, and, and there are people that feel that if and when the CRISPR technology is safe to use in embryos, and there's a whole debate around how you would even figure that out, but, you know, suppose that that conclusion could be drawn, they would want to use CRISPR to remove a really deleterious trait from their children. You know, as a parent, I can, I can understand that emotion for sure. But I also understand the feeling that we wouldn't want to see that type of manipulation used lightly. And I think it would be a terrible travesty if it were to be deployed in in vitro fertilization clinics, for example, as a way to have uh, children with, with traits that you think are, are more desirable for some reason that have nothing to do with health. You know, but how do we proceed? I think it has to come down to education and continuing to have an open and transparent global discussion about this because the technology is not slowing down. I think that question is really before us right now. Now, just before we wrap up, I wanted to ask your opinion on something that goes a bit beyond gene editing, more towards the whole field of biotechnology and life sciences. Last year uh, on the Economist Asks podcast, we interviewed the journalist and author and also your biographer, Walter Isaacson. And he told us that we're entering an era of the life sciences. This is a sort of successor to the information technology era of the 20th century. Do you agree? 
I agree. He has an, an interesting perspective because he has been chronicling what's happened with the information boom. But I think he's right that we're at the same kind of juncture now in biology and biotech, where increasingly we're going to see biological research and innovations having a profound impact on the economy going forward and all the kinds of applications that we've been discussing. And a final question. I want to just ask about your future. You spend a lot of time outside the lab doing things like um, organizing the meetings you're talking about, talking to people like me, educating. How much time do you get to be a bench biochemist these days? Uh, zero. <laughs> if you're asking, what, you know, am I in the, uh, in the laboratory uh, actually uh, doing experiments? No, sadly, I haven't done that for 10 years. But every single day, I am very engaged with the folks that are doing that work in the laboratory. So when I look at my, my daily calendar, every day I have one or more meetings with those scientists where we're discussing their data, talking about ideas. And I honestly, I just love that. I couldn't imagine giving that up. I mean, that's really the fundamental core of you know, why I love doing science. So I hope to continue doing that for as long as I can. Do you think you'll ever get back into the lab? Do you want to? Um, do I want to? Uh, yeah, yeah. I want to in my fantasies, but I think realistically it's not too likely to happen. I, and honestly, I think probably the better use of my time is helping those that are frankly more able right now in the laboratory to actually get their experiments done. Professor Downer, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Great talking with you, Alok. I appreciate it as well. Coming up, I'll round up The Economist's resident biotechnology nerds to see whether they share Jennifer's optimism for the future of gene editing. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. On today's show, we've heard from Jennifer Doudna, who discovered the CRISPR gene editing tool. And now joining me to analyse that technology and what we might be seeing in the future of gene editing are The Economist's biotechnology experts. Oliver Morton, our briefings editor, and Natasha Loder, the health policy editor. Ollie, Natasha, nice to see you both. Hey, hey, Alec, how you doing? Hey, nice to be talking to you, Alec. Ollie, let's start with you. You've been watching the field of gene editing for some time now. Do you share Jennifer Doudna's vast optimism about the future of this field? Well, I don't think I share an optimism that you'd have if you'd started it. But uh, yeah, I'm reasonably optimistic. I think there are a lot of ways that you can apply this technology that might make the world a better place and relatively few that will make it considerably worse screwed up. So yeah, I'm by and large, I'm on team optimism. And Natasha, let's talk about some of the healthcare ideas that uh, Jennifer raised. So, you know, how close do you think we are to realizing some of the potential benefits in healthcare that we talked about? Well, 
When it comes to producing medicines, they're quite closely monitored as they're developed and regulated quite tightly. So whereas we can tinker with plants and crop animals with relative ease, when it comes to sort of making these changes in humans, we're very much more cautious. And so I do think that we need to think of in terms of years, many years, you know, maybe four or five years at minimum before we're going to start to see things that are on the market and licensed and approved. But when they do come, I mean, they could be absolutely marvellous. I mean, you should definitely look to things like sickle cell anemia and beta thalassemia as areas where you could see medicines that are based on gene editing um, within four or five years, perhaps. Four or five years? That seems quite soon. Well, if you think about an older technology, gene therapy, which we've been working on for decades, we're still not really at the stage where we have these as approved products. And although we've done a lot of work that gene editing itself can kind of use and perhaps gene editing will move a bit faster, I think we need to kind of be realistic as to how quickly we can go forward. And so it's absolutely fantastic that we're seeing patients that effectively look like they've got functional cures from gene editing. And one of the potential benefits of gene editing over a rival technology of gene therapy is that it doesn't need a viral vector and so potentially could be cheaper to accomplish. So I would just caution that although it has this enormous potential, that it does have a little way to go. And is a lot of that down to things like regulation and just concern about unintended consequences and things? So whilst we should be positive, there are still questions around regulation, essentially. Is that what the the issue is? Well, you're going to want to characterise this new medicine. And so, for example, we know there are off-target effects for some of these treatments. And what that means is whether the editing has an impact on other areas of the genome. You know, you're editing somewhere you didn't mean to. And if these off-target effects do exist, you'd want to do a risk-benefit analysis to find out, well, you know, is it better to have gene therapy than not? All that sort of stuff takes time. And then there are other issues with delivery and how much of the therapy you can get to where you want to. And you have to do the trials and all that stuff that basically produces medicines that we're confident in. And then also gene editing, when you apply it to something that's sort of serious and rare, you could see it moving a lot more quickly. So if you were to come up, for example, with a gene editing treatment for, say, sickle cell disease, which can be very serious, you could imagine that it might move more quickly. But for gene editing, they're also talking about making multiple edits in some diseases. So tackling things like high cholesterol with multiple edits to the gene. And, you know, for something like that, you would imagine that you would have to do much larger trials and much larger numbers of people because you're competing against established therapies that are quite safe and quite effective. So there's a higher barrier to get across and that would take longer to achieve, I would guess. Ollie, are there any cautions you would also apply to this particular field? I mean, Natasha's raised several about just how complicated it is to get human treatments into the clinic. What would you say in that field? Well, yeah, but that's because humans, every one of them is valuable and we care about humans. I mean, I think I'm more interested in gene editing, really, in the near term, certainly, for work particularly on plants, where the ability to make lots of different changes, to compare lots of changes, just makes working with a plant genome so much easier. And, you know, if you get a few deformed rice grains, no one really cares. So if you want to really push things like changing whole 
aspects of metabolism. So, for instance, moving plants from C3 photosynthesis to C4 photosynthesis, which makes them more efficient. Those are sort of things that you really need to look at lots and lots of different changes made in tandem, which gene editing makes practical. For plants, I think it's absolutely terrific. I think that there may be a, a lot of new ways of redesigning plants that gene editing makes possible that simply haven't been possible with previous genetic technologies. Well, let's um, follow that line a little bit more. CRISPR's role in editing plants and making plants that can have some role in solutions for things like climate change, you know, adapting plants or making them be able to grow in places that they wouldn't have grown before or even becoming more efficient. Tell us a bit more about that. So there have been gene-edited crops made. There have been gene-edited cattle made. I wonder if you could sort of take us through what, what things you find particularly interesting in that and, and what role that might play in this sort of changing climate that we have around us. I think at the moment, these things are relatively small. The things that strike me as really intriguing are, for instance, making it possible for plants that aren't legumes to develop intimate relationships with soil bacteria that allow them to get fixed nitrogen. Now, that's an extraordinary ability that the legumes have and other types of plant don't. If all types of plant had it, you might see a radical reduction in the amount of nitrogen fertilizer that the world needed. And that would mean that the places that have too little nitrogen fertilizer, like large amounts of Africa, would no longer need it if they could be furnished with crops like this. And the places that use a lot too much nitrogen fertilizer, which leads to all sorts of other environmental problems, would be able to stop having those problems. So those sorts of things strike me as really exciting. But that involves doing a lot of work over, I think, still, even with these capabilities, a decade or two to really get somewhere. But I think that the great advantage of working with plants, and to some extent, with lower animals is that you really can imagine large-scale changes and try to bring them about. And that's just really not something that anyone wants to make permissible in higher animals like humans. Do you think that gene editing of plants and animals risks coming to the same fate as uh, genetic modification has around the world? I mean, Europe, for example, people look at it suspiciously in, in agriculture. I just wonder, do you think gene editing has something different about it that will perhaps give it less of a, a concern? Or are we going to sort of still follow the same public dialogues around this? Well, yeah, I think there's both a question of presentation and a question of substance here in that gene editing, I mean, it is more like editing than just like taking something and dumping it somewhere else, which is what genetic modifications tended to be. And at the same time, I think people doing gene editing will say, oh, no, this is a much finer, more um, precise technology. I also think that Europe will just be left behind on this because I don't think the rest of the world shares European concerns about this. And I think European concerns about genetic modification are, are long largely wrong. I think that the place where I have a modicum of sympathy for them is the sense that genetic modification was brought about by a capitalist system that the public wasn't buying into to bring about advantages that the public didn't necessarily perceive as advantages. I think if um, gene editing is used to do things that people see as really genuine advantages and avoids being sort of like tarnished with some sort of Monsanto brush, I think it could have a brighter future. But in much of the world, genetic modification is not much of a problem. And so I don't imagine gene editing will be either. OK, just to finish off then, let me ask both of you for your thoughts on Jennifer Doudna's comment at the end of her interview, where she said that biotechnology would have a profound impact on the economy going forward. Is she right? 
Yes, I think it's clear that the ability to manipulate living material so exquisitely is going to do an awful lot of interesting things with that. And I think they're also interesting non-profit-driven things. But the other day I was in a coffee shop and I was looking at a Dachshund and this Dachshund was looking back at me and I was thinking, wow, in just sort of like a few thousand years, we took that wolf genome and stretched it and messed around with it like silly putty. And here's this dachshund that seems very happy to be a dachshund. And I think in the long term, this malleability of living material is going to become something deeply embedded in lots of the ways that we do things. And it also may have a power over a particular bugbear of mine, which is when people talk about DNA as though it's the ultimate essence of everything and sort of, oh, it's in their DNA, oh, it's in their genes, as though that's a fundamental and definitive thing. If we understand life as a thing where genes are things that can be edited in order to bring about different phenotypes and processes and systems, then I think we might get a less essentialist um, idea about ourselves as well. And I think that would be all to the good. So, Natasha, we know Ollie's looking for the future of this field. What about you? What are you looking for as you watch the field going forward? Well, I'm looking at it as one of the technologies that's going to, to a large extent, expand our ability to make drugs that we've never been able to make before. And if you look at our history of medicine development, you know, we started off with very simple molecule drugs, and then we added biological drugs like Humira, which is a monoclonal antibody. And these all work on the proteins of the cells. But now we're sort of working upstream of these proteins. We're working at the RNA levels, we're working at the DNA levels. And what this means is that we just have this capacity to target different diseases. And so when we think about a future where we can cure or at least treat all diseases. What that means is being able to sort of reach into every part of the human cell and make the exact changes we want to see them and to make those changes and to understand what's going on. And what CRISPR is about is about making those changes. And so it's just one of a number of technologies that are really helping us vault to the next level. We still have some areas we need to work on, like really seeing those proteins and understanding all the sort of molecular pathways. We're not quite there yet. But this is just sort of one of those tools that's going to help us in our quest, really, to address the sort of human frailty at every level. What a lovely place to end. Natasha, Ollie, thank you both very much. Thank you. Nice to talk to you, Alan. And thank you for listening to Babbage. You can find more of our journalism in The Economist. This week, we've got an excellent piece in the science section about how NASA is looking to update the spacesuit. A new generation of astronauts will need a new generation of outfits. Turns out it's much more difficult than you might imagine. You can get your best introductory subscription offer by heading to economist.com slash podcast offer. There's a handy link in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin and mixed by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, 
whether it's a local operation or a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.